Well, good afternoon. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon. It's my pleasure to lead us in our sermon series we're calling 2020 Vision. And we're calling it 2020 Vision for a couple of reasons. First of all, simply the year is 2020. And we're looking at the vision that John saw that we have recorded for us in the book of Revelation. Uh, That's the first reason. But the second reason is this. We recognize that if we want to see clearly, we need to turn to the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me now to Revelation chapter 10. If you grab the Bible from the seat back in front of you, that'll be on page 1033. Otherwise, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. So if you have your own Bible, just turn to the last book and uh, look for the big number 10 and you'll be on your way. And as you do that, let me just pray for us as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together in your name. Father, thank you for the orchestra and the choir and how we can just raise our voices in joyful sound to you. And God, I pray now that as we open your word, I pray that you just give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that we'd be able to understand, but not only to understand that these words would sink deep into our hearts. Father, that we wouldn't be the same after we leave today because how you speak to us through your word. And so we recognize we need your help for this, and we ask for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before we get into Revelation today, I want to just tell you a story from the Old Testament. Uh, Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. It's about a man who was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was a king who had quite a few dreams that we read about in the book of Daniel. And I don't know about you, but whenever I have a dream, I usually don't read too much into the dream, right? I don't try to find a meaning or an interpretation. Usually when I'm trying to explain my dreams, I usually think about, okay, what was I reading before bed or what TV show was I watching before bed? Or maybe was I eating any kind of strange food before bed? But with Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream and he's always expecting that when he has a dream, there must be some kind of meaning, must be some kind of significance to the dream that he has. And so the system that he kind of uses, that usually what he'll do is he'll have a dream And then he'll wake up in the morning and he'll tell the wise men in his kingdom, it's a special kind of class of people, he'll tell them, this is what I saw in my dream, this is what I heard in my dream, and the wise men would consider those things and they'd say, hmm, well here's the significance of the dream that you just had. And they'd give him an interpretation of the dream. It's a nice little system that they have going on. Well, one day Nebuchadnezzar decides this system is no longer working, and I think maybe he's questioning, well, how do I know for sure that these interpretations are legitimate that these wise men are giving me? How do I know that they're not just making things up that I want to hear? And so one day Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, but he tries something different. He tells the wise men, I had a dream last night. I need you to interpret it. And the wise men say, absolutely, just tell us what you dreamt, and we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says, actually, no, this time you're going to tell me what I dreamt, and then you're going to give me the interpretation. And the wise men are are kind of saying, are you serious? Like, there's no way that we could do this. Unless you tell us your dream, we can't give you the interpretation. He says, well, you better find out a way how to do this. Otherwise, all the wise men in Babylon are going to be put to death. And there's this panic that goes throughout the kingdom because the wise men know it would be easy to give an interpretation if the king told them what the dream was. But because he doesn't tell them the dream, they just are in panic mode because they can do absolutely nothing. This is way beyond their their scope. The story, thankfully, ends on a positive note with Daniel, one of God's people, being given the revelation by God of not only the meaning of the dream, but also the dream itself. 
And Daniel tells the king, he says, King, this is what you dreamt, and this is what you saw in your vision in the night. This is what you heard in your vision in the night. And here is the meaning, and here is the interpretation. And because of this, all of the wise men in Babylon are saved. Now, I bring up this story because I think it illustrates for us, well, one of the challenges that we have when we read the book of Revelation. And in some ways, actually, our challenge is pretty much the exact opposite of the challenge for the people, the wise men in Babylon. See, for the wise men in Babylon, interpreting the king's dream would have been really easy if the king had just told them what he saw and what he heard. For us, the challenge is almost the opposite because what we have in the book of Revelation is a really clear record of what John saw and what he heard when God gave him a vision on the island of Patmos. What's challenging for us is knowing how do we interpret the vision that John saw? How do we find meaning and significance in all the the images that he saw, all the things that he heard? How do we go about interpreting those things? And this is going to be a very important question because when you look at the book of Revelation, you quickly realize that almost the entire book is one continuous visionary experience that John has. The whole book is telling us this is what John saw and this is what John heard and this is all the experiences he had. Right from the very beginning, right in chapter one, we hear about John turning on the Lord's day and he sees one like the Son of Man standing among the seven golden lampstands. Later on, he hears a voice telling him to come up to the throne room in heaven. And when he does that, he sees the throne room in heaven. He sees the lamb who was slain. He hears a voice calling for the, for the different riders. So you go through the book of Revelation from the beginning to the end, and you see it's just this one long list of all the things that John saw and John heard in his vision. Chapter 10 continues in much the same way in the chapter we're going to look at today. In chapter 10, John sees a mighty angel coming down from heaven to earth. He sees that in the hand of the angel, there's an open scroll, and the angel stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. John hears the angel call out with a loud voice, and when John hears that, he also hears these seven thunders begin to sound. John hears a voice saying, don't write down what the thunders have said. And then a little later, the same voice from heaven tells John, John, take the scroll that's in the hand of the angel, eat the scroll, it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but in your stomach it's going to be bitter. And we hear that description and that that summary, and we're going to get into it in more detail. We hear that description and summary, and probably for most of us, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, it's pretty clear what John saw. In fact, the imagery is very vivid. It's actually very memorable. The idea of someone taking a scroll and eating it, that's something we're probably going to remember after we leave here today. But the question becomes, what's the point of this vision that John saw? What's the meaning behind these images, and, and how are we supposed to figure out what's going on? See, the, the, the thing about Revelation is oftentimes there's some kind of thing sitting in the background that's going to give the images meaning. And if we don't know what that background is or we don't know kind of where to look for that background information, it's going to be difficult for us to determine what the images are talking about. Let me give you a modern kind of example or illustration to, to show you what I'm talking about. I want you to picture for me right now something I'm about to describe. I saw a political cartoon a while back that I think is going to help us. And so in this political cartoon, you have a a picture of a stage. And on this stage, there's three podiums, much like the one over here, three podiums. And behind each of the podiums is a person gripping the podium or pointing at their opponent or having an angry face. And they're all arguing back and forth amongst each other. They're all pointing. They're all, you know, angry, intense. It's a political debate that's ensuing. 
And the artist has drawn this political debate. It's obvious that there's confrontation, there's, there's argumentation back and forth. But what's so interesting about this comic is that the artist has decided to draw on each of the candidates' faces a nose that's two feet long. And you look at this comic and you see these politicians arguing with each other with these two feet long noses and you recognize right away that the artist is trying to make a point. Right? Most of us intuitively know that when you draw politicians with a two foot long nose, you're trying to make a point in saying that these politicians are obviously lying. And underneath the comic there was this caption that said, this would make assessing political candidates a lot easier. In other words, the, the idea is if you knew right away when a person was lying, it would be a lot easier to judge them and to you know, assess them as a political candidate. And the author does this by drawing these long noses on the candidates. Now, the question is, well, why would we know that this is the point that the author is trying to make? How do we know that this is where the author is going? And the answer is because we all know about the little character named Pinocchio. Right? Maybe you've heard the story or, or seen the movie or just kind of caught references to Pinocchio, but Pinocchio in the story is a little puppet, a little wooden puppet, and whenever Pinocchio lies, his nose begins to grow. And because this is kind of a common image or kind of this part of the shared pool of images we have in our culture, when this artist decided to draw these politicians with the long noses, he knew people would understand that he was making a point about whether this politician was truthful or not. And for most of us, it's easy to kind of see an image like this and right away understand the point that the author's trying to make or the artist is trying to make. But I want you to imagine for a second that we're now 2,000 years in the future. And you're looking at the exact same political cartoon with the politicians arguing with the long noses. And I want you to imagine that Pinocchio is no longer part of our shared pool of images as a culture. In other words, nobody's heard the story of Pinocchio. Nobody knows who he is. And a long nose no longer represents lying for most people as they think about long noses. What would happen is now you're looking at this image and because you don't know the background information behind it, the image just kind of seems nonsensical to us because we don't know how to interpret it. Now the good news would be if you wanted to try really hard and you wanted to do some work, you could go and you could try to research what possible backgrounds could be behind this image. And you could do some digging and you could find out, oh, actually 2,000 years ago there was this character named Pinocchio and I think that's telling us that these politicians are lying, right? You could do that research to kind of dig up that background information. And the reality is for us as we look at the book of Revelation, that's kind of the job that we have to do as we try to understand this book. To try to ask the questions of, okay, what's the background information that we are maybe missing or that we need to fill in if we're going to understand this book well? And so your outline says this, when we know the background of the images in Revelation, things become much clearer. Now notice I didn't say they become crystal clear or they become, you know, so that we can understand without any difficulty. All I'm saying is that when we look hard to to ask the question, what's standing in the background, things become a lot more easy for us as we go about interpretation. And so what I want to do right now is just give you four things that we should look at whenever we're trying to interpret the images in Revelation. Uh, They're not in your notes, but if you want to jot them down, it might be helpful. Just four things to kind of consider whenever you're looking at the images in Revelation, trying to understand what they might be talking about. Uh, The first one is this, probably the most simple one. The first one is just asking the question, does the book of Revelation actually explain this image anywhere explicitly? 
Right? So in other words, there's going to be times when you read about a certain image or something that John saw, and then later in the book, or maybe right afterwards, there's going to be this explanation of, this is what John saw, and this is what it means. A good example of this is in the first chapter. So John, like I said before, he turns and he sees one like a son of man standing among seven golden lampstands. And so right away we're wondering, okay, well, what could these seven lampstands be representing? What could the seven lampstands mean? And later on, the angel tells John that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia Minor that John is writing this letter to. Right? So there's a sense in which sometimes you don't need to go too far looking for background. There's going to be sometimes when the book of Revelation just lays out for us what it means and, and the meaning behind some of the images that it uses. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is, is similar in some ways. The second th- thing we need to keep in mind is that whenever you see an image in the book of Revelation, you have to ask yourself the question, is this the first time we've seen this image or have we seen this image somewhere else that could help us to understand what's going on? And the reality is, especially as you get towards the middle and the end of Revelation, a lot of the images that we see are going to be images that have shown up before in the book. And so the nice thing about that is oftentimes an image is explained really well early on in the book. And then every time you see that image again, you can kind of go back and remind yourself of what the significance of that image was to help you understand in the present. And we're going to see some examples of that a little bit later on as we look at our text in chapter 10. Uh, That's the second thing. The third thing is this. The third thing we need to do when we look at the book of Revelation, and specifically some of the images and some of the things John saw and that he heard, is to look at some of just the basic cultural and historical background to the book. Right? There's going to be things that John could have talked about to his readers that they would have readily understood because they were living in that time, in that place, in that culture, that are a little bit more difficult for us because we live in a different time and place and culture. A good example of this is when the third seal is broken and we hear about the price of wheat. Uh, so a, a voice calls out and says, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Now, for most of us, when you hear the price, a quart of wheat for denarius, you have absolutely no idea if that's a good price or if it's a bad price or what a quart is or what a denarius is. I imagine probably even most people, if you're farmers in this room, wouldn't kind of know that terminology. But it's important for us to to try to figure out what it's saying because for John's readers, they would have readily understood something like that. And, And the nice thing is when you do a bit of digging, you realize, oh, this is trying to make a statement about food prices being astronomically higher than they normally would be. This is, this is a way of making a statement about this must be some kind of famine or some kind of economic crisis because the normal provision of food for the day is costing way more than it normally would. See, sometimes understanding just some of that cultural or some of that historical, geographical information is going to help the images to come alive. And then finally, number four, and I think this is probably the most important one, A lot of the images that we see in the book of Revelation come straight out of the Old Testament. Uh, Some people have said that the book of Revelation is the most influenced by the Old Testament in all of the New Testament. And and it's an interesting claim. I think, you know, there's different ways that people have tried to count this or calculate this. It's interesting, though, because when you read the book of Revelation, there's not a single place where the author quotes the Old Testament directly. In other words, John never says, you know, remember what's written in the book of Isaiah or remember what's written in the book of Malachi. John never quotes the Old Testament directly, but what we see, there's so many things in his vision, things that he sees, things that he hears that are just so 
similar to the Old Testament that we just can't help but go and look back and see what did the Old Testament say? So there's going to be times when you see an image in the book of Revelation, you're saying, well, what does this mean? What does this represent? And the amazing thing is you can go back to the Old Testament, you can see that same image, and sometimes that image is impacted in great detail in the Old Testament to give us a sense of, oh, this is probably what's being talked about here. We see this with books like Daniel, especially, or the book of Ezekiel as well. But actually, all through the Old Testament, we see different images being picked up that would have been probably quite recognizable or understandable to most of John's readers, which sometimes are more difficult for us to wrap our heads around. And so there's probably more that could be said. But with those four things in mind, what we want to do now is just walk through the book of Revelation, chapter 10, walk through these 11 verses, and try to apply these four things to the text so that we can ask the question not only of what did John see and what did he hear, uh, but what's the meaning for this? What's the significance and how can we live in light of it? So with that being said, let's dive into verse one of chapter 10. We'll read the first few verses and then pause to make some comments. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now again, it's it's clear that this is what John saw, but the question is, okay, what does this mean or what's the significance in these descriptions of this angel? Uh, What can we learn about this angel based on the way it's described? And we won't look at all the details here, but I want to just make a note of a few things A lot of this language is used elsewhere in the book in other contexts, and it helps us to see what's going on here. I'll give you a few examples of this. In in our text that we just read here, the angel's face, it shines like the sun. Well, earlier in chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus' face shone like the sun in full brilliance. So there's some kind of connection between this angel and Jesus. What's more is that we see that the angel, it says, has a rainbow over his head. What's interesting about that is in chapter 4, when John is seeing the throne room in heaven, when he's seeing the very throne of God, we see that there's a rainbow surrounding the throne of God. And then finally, we see that this angel is described having a scroll open in his hand, and he's come from heaven to earth. In chapter 5, we see that the Lamb of God who was worthy took the scroll and began to open its seals. And so you look at all these things that are connecting back and you see, okay, whatever else we can say about this angel, this angel appears to be an angel who's been in the presence of God, been in the presence of Jesus, and now has this scroll that's being brought from heaven to earth. Notice that it says that the angel stands with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. I believe it's a way of saying that the message of the angel or the actions of the angel that he's about to undertake have relevance for all of creation. Right? There, there's a sense in which his message is now going to have relevance for, for the earth and all that is in it, for the sea and all that is in it. In other words, all of creation is going to be affected by the message and the actions that this angel is about to take. So let's read about what the angel does now in verse 3. And the angel called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So this is, again, where things might get even more confusing for us. But if we take it slow, I think we'll see that there's some really important things going on here. Uh, First of all, let's talk about these seven thunders that sound. It says the mighty angel comes down from heaven to earth and he raises a loud voice and the seven thunders sound and John goes to write down what they said and the voice from heaven says, no, John, don't write down what the thunders have said. And so the two questions that come out of this are, well, what are the thunders? What are these seven thunders? And why was John told not to write them down? Well, to answer that first question, what are the seven thunders, we have to acknowledge there's a sense in which speaking with absolute certainty here is probably not something that we can do, right? There's the reality that John was told not to write down what the seven thunders have said. And so in some ways, we want to reserve from being absolutely dogmatic, but we can look at the context and make our best guesses based on what we've seen before in the book of Revelation. And what we notice if you look back in Revelation is that we've seen two sets of seven already. We've seen the seven seals, we've seen, or in the middle of the seven trumpets. And when you look at the seven seals and the seven trumpets, what you see is that both of them contain these series of judgments that are both partial and warning judgments leading up to the final judgment. Uh, Neither of them affect everything, but both of them only affect a fraction of the created order. So the seals affect one quarter of creation. The trumpets affect one third of creation. So you have seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we hear about seven thunders. A lot of people have suggested, and I think they have good reason to, that the seven thunders likely would have been some sort of similar series of partial or warning judgments leading up to the final judgment. Uh, Richard Bauckham is a theologian. He writes this. So the series of judgments affecting a quarter of the earth and the series affecting a third of the earth are not, as we might expect, followed by a series affecting half the earth. No doubt, the seven thunders would have been such a series. Now, I probably wouldn't go as far as Bauckham to say that there's no doubt about this interpretation, but I do think he is on the right lines. I do think there is a sense in which we should probably understand these seven thunders as another series of partial warning judgments leading up to the final judgment. And then John is told, don't write down what the seven thunders say. Seal it up, don't write it down. What's the purpose of this? Well, again, I think what's happening here is John is being told, don't write down what the thunders have said. It has this rhetorical effect of saying, for now, enough has been said about these partial warning judgments that are going to precede the final judgment. For now, enough has been said about this. Now we're moving on to something else. And that something else happens when the angel raises his right hand to heaven and he swears an oath to God. He says, there will be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. I think what this section in Revelation 10 is teaching us is that the day is coming when there's going to be no more partial judgments, no more warning judgments. But that when the seventh trumpet sound, all of God's purposes, the mystery of God will be completely fulfilled just as he announced beforehand through the prophets. In other words, your outline says it like this. The day is coming when there will be no more delay and the final judgment will arrive. 
And when you read the book of Revelation and when you hear that seventh trumpet begin to sound, you see that after that seventh trumpet, the the events leading up to the final culmination of everything have been set in order. We had the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders. The final group of seven is the seven bowls. And when the seven bowls are poured out upon the earth, it's no longer this partial judgment. It's no longer a warning judgment. But it says, when the seven bowls are poured out, the fullness of the wrath of God is poured out. John's telling us through this vision that when the seventh trumpet sounds, there will be no more time for anything. No more time to repent. No more time to wait. No more time. But God will fulfill the promises that he made to bring about salvation and judgment. And this is one of the messages, I think, in the book of Revelation that's inescapable. You can't read through Revelation without realizing that the day of judgment is coming and that there's going to be a final day in which there will be no more time. No more time to put things off, but God will judge the world in the totality of what that means. And I think for most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, this is not necessarily a message that we feel too warm and fuzzy about. This is not a message that we feel great about all the time and we have maybe difficulty explaining this to to people that don't believe in Jesus or we maybe are a little embarrassed about the idea of God as a judge. But it's something we need to come to grips with if we're going to take Scripture seriously. It's important for us to recognize as well that when John writes the book of Revelation, when he receives this vision from the Lord, he's writing to a church and to many churches actually who are experiencing intense persecution. In many of these churches, people are are suffering economically, they're suffering socially. In some churches, they're suffering physically, they're suffering violently. We even read about some churches where there's been people who have been martyred, people who've lost their life because of the gospel. At one point, we see this scene in Revelation where there's these martyrs, people who have lost their life for the gospel, who are under the altar in heaven. They're crying out to God, God, how long? They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? In other words, you're saying, God, how long until you come and vindicate us? How long until you come and judge the world in righteousness? And chapter 10 tells us the day is coming when they will no longer have to wait, but the judgment will come. And you can imagine for those suffering persecution, for those who have lost loved ones, for those who are on the brink of of enduring intense suffering, this would be a message that would bring some hope to them. We see a similar dynamic taking place in the book of 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes about these people he calls scoffers. People who come, they, they're, they're poking fun, they're making fun of believers, and they're asking questions like, you know, when is God going to fulfill his promises? Basically, they're saying, you know, if, if you trust in God and you're willing to give everything, you know, your whole life for God, well, what, when is God going to actually come through for you? They're, they're you know, asking these things in a mocking way, and they, they say, basically, you know, everything's always gone on the way it always has. Nothing's ever going to change. Things are always going to go on just like they always had. When is God going to show up and fulfill his promises? And they mock them and they say, it feels like it's taking a long time, doesn't it? And Peter writes to the church, and he says these words in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. 
but instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. See, Peter's saying, just like Revelation says, the day is coming when the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When God will decisively act on behalf of his people in salvation and judgment. But what's interesting is Peter says, until that time comes, what God is showing us is that he is a patient God. He actually doesn't want people to perish. He wants people to come to repentance. And so the question is, if we know that the day is coming when there will be no more time, when there will be no more delay, how does God call us to act in the meantime? How does God call us to act with the time that we do have? And this is, I think, where Revelation 10 verse 8 takes us. So let's keep reading together uh, verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So again, a lot of potent imagery here, a lot of things that are memorable. But what's nice is we have verse 11 that kind of gives us a general explanation of what's going on here. John is being commissioned to once again preach or prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Uh, So that much is clear right at the start. But the question then is, well, what is this scroll? Why is John told to eat the scroll? And what about the scroll is bitter? And what about the scroll is sweet? So let's start with the first one. What is this scroll that John is told to eat? Well, we've seen this scroll before in the book of Revelation that's actually kind of gone on a long journey. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see that the one who is on the throne, God himself, has a scroll tightly grasped in his hand. The scroll with seven seals. And the question is, who is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God and to open the seals? And at first there's great lamentation because nobody's worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. But then John hears that, no, actually, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has conquered and he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And it says John turned and he saw a lamb that had been slain. And Jesus, the lamb who was slain, was worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because he was slain and by his blood he purchased people for God. And so Jesus takes the scroll in chapter 6 and, and, and following, we hear about the seals of that scroll being opened. In other words, the this, this scroll is no longer sealed. The, the seals are being undone. And in chapter 10, we read about this angel now coming from heaven to earth with this open scroll in his hand. So I think we're actually looking at the same scroll as chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we said that the scroll contained God's purposes for the salvation, God's purposes for judgments, God's purposes for the culmination of all things. And in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus was worthy to open that scroll. In other words, Jesus was worthy to carry out God's purposes for all these things because of his death and resurrection. And so now we see John is told, okay, take the scroll that contains 
the, the fullness of God's purposes, the fullness of God's plans for salvation, for redemption, for judgment, for the inauguration of his kingdom. Take that scroll and eat that scroll. Now again, we're, we're wondering, what does it mean to eat a scroll? What's the significance there? And this is one, one of the places in Revelation where when you go back to the Old Testament, you really get a lot of help because we see almost the exact same imagery used in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel was one of the prophets that God had commissioned, and Ezekiel is given this commission by God to go and share a message with the people of Israel. And listen to the words that are used in Ezekiel chapter 2. I'll start in verse 9, and we'll go to 3 verse 3. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. In the context of Ezekiel, we see that when God tells Ezekiel to eat this scroll, it's a way of talking about completely internalizing the message that God has given him before then going and sharing it with those others he's called to speak to. If we use kind of uh, language that's just kind of more towards the, the imagery here, we can say that he's totally ingesting the message of the scroll before sharing it with others. And I think this is what's going on in Revelation. When the angel comes and he gives John the scroll, he says, John, eat this scroll. The idea is, John, is to completely ingest the message of the scroll before sharing this with others. Completely internalize this message, to know this message inside and out before sharing with others. The message, of course, being that God's purposes are being accomplished decisively through Jesus. That judgment, that salvation, that the final consummation, that's all drawing near. And because of that, the call is to repentance in light of the coming judgment and salvation that God is offering. John is told that when he eats this message, when he eats this scroll, it's going to be sweet in his mouth, but it's going to be bitter in his stomach. When the question is, what makes this sweet and what makes it bitter? Well, I think sweet for a couple of reasons. First of all, because this is the word of God. And anytime you hear the word of God referred to in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's compared to honey. And honey is, is sweet, and, and the word of God is even sweeter. And so I think what we see here is a reference back to that idea from the Old Testament, but also sweet because it contains the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's a message that contains the, the good news of what Jesus has done to save us from the judgment. But the question is well, what makes this message bitter? And I think the answer is found in the fact that so often as we look at the book of Revelation and we see the message of the gospel being proclaimed, oftentimes that message is met with rejection. And you see, the gospel, of course, it's it's good news. That's what it actually means, good news. But the gospel is good news precisely because of the bad news of our situation before we come to Christ. The, The gospel can be good news because before we receive the gospel, we're actually in a bad situation, an awful situation apart from Christ. And when you think about it, the gospel is good news only if you actually accept and respond to the good news of the gospel. If you hear the good news of the gospel and you reject it, it actually remains just this stern warning of judgment for those who reject Christ. And so I think when John eats this scroll and when he 
taste it and it tastes sweet, but there's a bitterness also. I think this is the dynamic that's at play here. That there's a sweetness to the gospel, but also this harsh warning, this harsh reality of judgment that comes for those who reject the message. In Ezekiel's day, God tells him that, Ezekiel, people are going to reject this message and it's going to be mourning and woe and lamentation. I think for John as well, there's this expectation that many will reject the message that you preach, John, and that's going to be completely bitter for you to experience. But the amazing news is that there is still hope. What's so so amazing in Revelation is that John receives this commission before the seventh trumpet actually sounds. Remember, when we, when we look at the book of Revelation, we kind of see these events progressing. John receives this commission, though, before the seventh trumpet sounds and before there is no time left. And as believers, in a similar way, we receive the great commission. We receive the command to go and preach the gospel to all the nations while there is still time. And so the outline says this, as the church, we must share the gospel to lead people to Jesus while there is still time. One of the things that Revelation kind of raises as a question is what's going to lead people to repentance? In chapter 9 last week, we saw some horrifying images of God's judgment against humanity. And at the end of chapter 9, even after all the things that we saw, there's this line that said, even after all of this, the people did not repent. The people did not turn towards God, even after all these things. And so the question was, well, if they don't repent because of all the judgments that are falling upon humanity, what is actually going to bring about the repentance of the world in relation to God? And the good news of Revelation 10 is that the witness of the church intervenes before the final judgment. And just as Jesus laid down his life in obedience to the Father, just as Jesus was worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because he was willing to lay down his life, Now, as Jesus' followers, as followers of the Lamb, we're called in the same way to lay down our lives in obedience to the Father as we proclaim the message of what Jesus has done. And as we do that, there will be many that say, well, no, thank you. There will be many that reject that message, many that say, it's not for me. I don't care about this. That's just not who. But there will be always some who the Holy Spirit works in their heart and they come to repentance and believe in Jesus, turn away from their sin and turn towards God and are saved for all of eternity. And there's nothing sweeter than that reality. See, we don't all know what the future holds in terms of what persecution we'll face, what opposition we'll encounter, what pushback we'll receive if we share the gospel. But if you have been saved by Jesus, if you've accepted the good news of the gospel in your own life, we all know that we have an obligation then to share that with others. We have this command, this commission from God to share the good news of Jesus. Revelation 8 or 10 warns us that the day is coming when there will be no more time. No more time for for second chances. No more time for sharing the gospel. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do with the time that God has given to us? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that as we're still living and breathing, that you have given us time for the sake of your kingdom, Father. And we thank you that you're a God who is patient. God, we thank you that you don't wish that people perish, but that you desire all to come to repentance. And so, Father, we just pray that you'd wake us up to that reality this morning. 
Father, I pray that you'd help us even to, to, to change the way we think about the time that you've given to us. Father, I pray that you just, in our hearts, raise up a love of your word, a love of the gospel that we would be willing to share with others. I pray that we'd be able to see clearly what Jesus had done for us and that would just spark in our lives just such a joy to share with others. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We pray that you just go with us this week in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.